select well-known parts of it, the beginnings and the ends of the book. And the middle has always been, like Shakespeare called, that undiscovered country that uh, one reads through, but doesn't spend a lot of time lingering in and teaching on. And so it's been a great personal joy to spend time over the past couple of weeks digging into this book, the capstone, the summation of all that we've been doing in this last week. And as a church, often we shy away from looking at the book of Revelation. There's some very good reasons for that sometimes. We tend to stick to the main and the plain of Scripture. And as you read through the book, sometimes it doesn't seem plain at all, and it certainly doesn't feel like it's main. But there's great treasures, great riches here as we get to understand it. And uh, I hope that by the end of this evening, you'll be encouraged to do so personally, and that we might live out some of the treasure in this book. Before we dig in, I'm going to pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you for the words spoken at the end of the book, that blessed are those who read out this prophecy out loud. And we pray for that blessing as we read portions of it. We pray and ask, Lord, that you'd bless our thinking, give us minds to understand, ears to hear your voice, and I pray that you'd thrill our hearts again with the beauty, with the majesty of the glory of the Lord Jesus. In your name we ask this. Amen. Well, one of the main reasons why uh, the book of Revelation often isn't looked at is that there's a lot of disagreement as to how it's meant to be used and interpreted. And some of you will know the uh, well-known story of a man who's standing on the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, admiring the beauty of the view, and he, he sidles up to another man who's also admiring the beauty of the view from the bridge. And he hears this other man say, what an awesome God. And the first man thinks, great, okay, so let's engage this guy conversation. Here's what he says. I turned to him and said, oh, are you a Christian? And he said, yes, I am a Christian. I said, so am I, and we shook hands. I said, are you a liberal or fundamental Christian? He said, I'm a fundamental Christian. I said, so am I, and so we smiled and nodded to each other. I said, are you a covenantal or dispensational fundamental Christian? He said, I'm a dispensational fundamentalist Christian. And I said, so am I. And we slapped each other on the back. I said, are you an early acts, mid acts, or late acts dispensational fundamental Christian? He said, I'm a mid acts dispensational fundamental Christian. I said, so am I. And we agreed to exchange Christmas cards each year. I said, are you a pre-tribulation or post-tribulation, mid-acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian. He said, I'm a pre-tribulation, mid-acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian. And I said, so am I. And we agreed to exchange our kids for the summer. I said, are you a 12-in or 12-out, pre-tribulation, mid-acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian? He said, I'm a 12-in, pre-tribulation, mid-acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian. I said, you heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> For those of you that don't know what 12 in or 12 out pre-trib means, uh, we'll be exploring that a bit later. Another reason why this book has often not been looked at is that those who do look at it perhaps get a bit too passionate about it, about some of the intricacies of the prophecies and some of the 
dating of what goes on in the book. It seems that nearly every single year you hear of another person that's calculated the date of the end of the world. And that date, of course, goes by and nothing has happened. It happened again this year in October. It's happened throughout history, in fact. Or if you're a Jehovah's Witness, it has happened. You just didn't notice it. Just didn't notice it. Another example of this is that the beast that's mentioned in the book of Revelation chapter 17 throughout history has been identified as different political powers. By the early church, it was identified as the Roman Empire, but that didn't come about. During the Reformation, Protestants identified the beast as the Catholic Church. In the last century, both Nazism and communism have both been identified as the beast with the mark. And most recently, the European Union has been identified as the beast, which, uh, considering its turmoil at the moment, is quite laughable, actually. This book has often caused a lot of controversy, a lot of confusion, a lot of hot-headedness, but at heart, it doesn't really need to do either. It's got a very simple message about how things are going to turn out in the end. There's a story from an American uh, seminary training Bible students, and a group of students were walking through the campus and saw a janitor with his Bible open reading the book of Revelation halfway through it. And they looked with great arrogance and scoffed and said, do you understand what you're reading? And the janitor just put down his book for a moment, a broad smile crossed his face and said, yes, I do. Jesus wins. And that's actually... The key story. That's the key meaning. Jesus wins. If you've got that, you've understood the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. And this is the message that the original hearers of the book needed to hear above all. Jesus wins. The context of the book is of a vision of end times given to the Apostle John at the end of his life in exile for his faith on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean. The early church was suffering the persecution of the whole might of the Roman Empire for the first time. And despite its explosive growth in the first three decades after Christ, she just seemed to be on the back foot wherever she was now, suffering, being persecuted, and top leaders being martyred. And what God shows to John, a vision on the Lord's Day, was to be of comfort to seven particular churches in Asia Minor, Bonday, Turkey, though especially going through tough times, that that Jesus wanted to show that he knew their struggles and that actually it fitted into how things were meant to be, that they were tasting the end times in advance. Huge struggles, opposition, oppression, persecution, suffering. But in the end, just as in the end times, which they were part of already, Jesus wins the battle against evil. And this should bring comfort in the midst of temporary defeat. There's a call to faithfulness and perseverance until the day that this book talks about. And the analogy that's often been used is of uh, World War II and the difference between D-Day and V-E Day. You've probably heard this before, that at the cross, Jesus won the victory over every single force of the enemy. Adam and Mike both referenced it yesterday. 
That was D-Day. As soon as the cross happened, victory was assured. As soon as the Allies hit Normandy Beach, victory was in the end assured after the first couple of hours. But VE Day, ultimate triumph, just as for the Allies, it took months of intense battle, some of the toughest battle they'd ever faced. So for us, that VE Day to come, the ultimate victory, is going to come through a lot of toil, a lot of blood that's shed, a lot of battling, but the victory is assured. And the way that God shows John this is through a grand sweeping vision of the future. And one of the key uh, problems in interpreting this vision is that it's in a series of smaller visions of what are known as apocalyptic visions. We've mentioned that term a few times over the last week that the Bible has other places where the apocalyptic is seen, most notably at the end of the book of Daniel for a large section. And apocalyptic visions have a number of things in common. Firstly, they're highly symbolical. And secondly, they're very rich biblically. The symbolism would have been well understood probably by the original readers, but with a gap of 2,000 years, some of that has been lost to us, that we can try to recover it. And the biblical richness, sometimes we overlook, but it's there. And if we pay attention to both, actually, there's great fruit from studying this book. The reason that God shows this vision in the apocalyptic is because when God reveals heaven and the end times and all that's going on, it's more than our normal 4D senses can handle. Way more, actually. And so God has to compress all that information and data into these symbols and these crazy things that John sees just to try and communicate the vastness of what's going to happen. Well, today, for today's reader, not all is lost. If we come with humility, or if we come on our knees, if we come with an ear open to 2,000 years' worth of scholarship, if we come with an ear open to the voice of the Holy Spirit, I think there is... Hopefully tonight, a chance that we'll understand this book and what it means for us. Uh, before I go into the contents, on your handouts, you'll see that there's a subsection entitled Full Historically Inter Historical Interpretive Views. I'm going to put the headlines up here as well. You see, over history, as people have studied this book, they've come to four settled ways of trying to understand the events of the book. And it all hinges on when you think these things are happening. The first one that I mention in the handout is the Preterist view. And that's the understanding that everything that happens in this book happened in the context of the early church and was fulfilled during the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Now this fits in with some of the imagery, for example, how the great evil city of Babylon is situated on seven hills, just like Rome was historically. But its main weakness is that there isn't much of a matchup between the events of Revelation and the events that happened in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Only tiny tangential touches. And the end of the book of Revelation, heaven coming on earth, really wasn't seen when that happened and was definitely still to come. The second way of viewing Revelation that's emerged over history is the historicist view. And that is that the Revelation's predictions cover the entire age between the first and second comings of Christ. It's the history of the church. 
In this view, actually, one scholar has worked out that we're currently living somewhere between Revelation 16 and Revelation 17, if that is true. And here, the seven opening letters to the seven churches are the seven different ages of the church that are then represented in the book. And this view certainly makes sense of the persecution of the church of the ages, the seeming intensification of it, just as happens in the book. But again, many of the descriptions of the events in the book don't match up to church history very well. Okay, the third one is futurist. And this position believes that the central block of predictions in Revelation correspond to the last few years leading up to the second coming. And this makes sense of the fact that many of the events that are predicted haven't been seen yet, because they will be seen. But it begs the question, if you stick too strongly to this, how much of that would have been comforting to its original hearers, knowing that these events were actually for the last generation of Christians and not for them? And then the last way of interpreting this book is the idealist version. And that says that there's no clear timeline or timescale to the book of Revelation that is purely descriptive of the eternal battle between good and evil and can be applied to any age and century. It's very appealing because you don't have to try and fit specific events in the book to events in history. But its weakness is that it actually treats the whole book as non-historical. Almost a myth, an allegory, if you were. Most commentators over the years have plumped one of these four different views. And different views have come to prominence at different times. All of which have strengths to commend them, but weaknesses that mean that they don't work as well. The approach I want to take tonight is that we don't have to choose between the four approaches, actually. That all four apply at different times in different places in the book. Just as the symbology in the book of Revelation is multi-layered and can have multiple values and meanings at the same time, I think the book itself can have multiple ways of being interpreted that are suggested by the text itself. And we allow the text to control the way that we interpret what's being written. So we'll find elements of all four mixed together. For example, the letters at the beginning of the book fit very well in the pre-trace method that actually really was describing what was going on in that situation in the fall of the Roman Empire and the hope that actually Jesus would conquer these guys who are currently conquering them. But at the same time, the coming of heaven on earth at the end of the book only really fits into, into the futurist interpretation that that is to come. The middle section of the book, I think, is a mixture of futurist and idealist. And actually, there are key moments within the book of Revelation, especially when we look at the millennium a bit later, when the historicist approach works best. We have to be flexible, because I think the book forces us to be flexible by the way it's composed as to how we interpret it. Feel free to disagree with me on all of this, by the way, because many will do. Okay, well, moving on. Um, most people would say that the book itself splits into three parts, and there's general agreement on this. There is the first part, the long introduction that includes the letters to the churches and a, a few extra chapters. Then there is the solid bulk, the main core, which is probably the hardest to understand and explain. And then there is the soft ending, the wonderful ending, the last couple of chapters. And there are lots of ways of trying to unify these three different parts and give an overall schema to this thing. 
My favourite is actually by the old Bible scholar, J. Sidlow Baxter, who some of you uh, will know about and have read his wonderful almanac of the Bible, Explore the Book, which forces you to memorise bits of the Bible. If you haven't got that book, it's an amazing book. And he says that actually the uniting factor is Christ's enthronement over all things, which is successively shown by his enthronement over different elements of the universe in the book of Revelation. And this fits very well with the storyline of the Bible we've been looking at. A verse that Adam started our talks with, Ephesians 1 verse 9, says that God's plan and purpose in Christ is this, to be put into effect when times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. So the destiny of the universe is for every part of it to be put under the feet of Jesus. Hence the very beginning of the books, the thanksgiving in the first chapter speaks of Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, setting the tone as to what's going to happen. He's going to rule over the kings of the earth. He's going to be seen as the ultimate ruler over all reality. And in this understanding, there are three enthronements that happen in the book of Revelation, three spheres that Christ gradually is shown to be king over all. The first one is the present one. Christ is enthroned in heaven. The second, Christ will be enthroned on earth, and there's a process that has to occur for that to occur. And then lastly, Christ is enthroned over the new creation, front and center, ruler over it. And the book of Revelation gently untaps and unpacks those three successive enthronements. We're going to run very quickly through those three parts and stop at various interesting moments, complex moments, let's just say. So I hope you've got your seatbelts buckled. Okay, first part, Christ's enthronement in heaven. This is the first five chapters, I think. In the very first chapter, verses 12 to 20, there's an opening powerful vision of Christ amongst the seven lampstands which frames the whole book. And we find out that the lampstands represent the seven churches he's speaking to John for. In chapters 2 and 3, he may not be recognized as king over the earth, but he is king over his church. And he speaks with authority to these seven churches, condemning them, commending them, rebuking them, promising great things for them, reward or condemnation depending on their behavior. He rules over his church from heaven on his throne. And then chapter four, we see him doing that. We see the throne room of God in heaven. The one sat on the throne who is amazing to look at and behold. And the throne room, which is just marked by worship to the true and rightful king. The four living creatures, probably representing all of earth's living creatures, all the heavenly beings, worshiping him. And then the elders, the 24 elders, probably representing the 12 patriarchs, patriarchal tribal heads, the 12 apostles, combined together God's old and new covenant people, worshiping him in heaven. And then chapter 5, we see the lamb who was slain, Jesus, the crucified one, slain and therefore it's proclaimed he is worthy to be the judge of the whole world and he's worthy to open up a scroll. And what is this scroll? Well, we soon find out it's God's end time plan to enact his complete rulership over the world 
the scroll that's been written in advance, that only Jesus is worthy to unfurl and open up because he is one at the cross, because he was the one who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him to have the name above all other names. So that, in the coming ages, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And that's what Revelation enacts. That every tongue, every, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So Jesus, the King of Heaven, when he begins to unwrap and open the seals of this scroll, opens up end time events. That plan of God to bring all things under his feet. When the king returns, judgment occurs and everything is put right and justice finally comes to the whole earth. God's enemies are put under Jesus' feet. But the process of that is complicated and it's going to take some doing. And God shows a lot of mercy as he does that and that is the center section of this book. Christ's enthronement on earth as his plan is unwrapped for this to occur. Center section of the book of Revelation, I would estimate, is chapter 6 to 20. And it's dominated by sevens. <laughs> it's dominated by sevens. It's dominated by seven bowls that then uh, are preceded by seven trumpets, which are preceded by seven seals, or going the right way around. Seven seals that are open, followed by seven trumpets that are blown, followed by seven bowls that are poured out. There are some interesting cycles going on in the midst of the mass of this center section. And talking about these sevens very briefly, it's very tempting to say that these cycles of seven are identical. They're just representing the same events happening from different angles, almost like uh, in a football match, a video replay of a goal being scored might be seen from different angles to see different parts of it. And many people will go down that route, the idealist route, actually. But actually, I want to argue it's probably not quite that simple. Because some of these things don't match up as they should. So, for example, the fifth seal being opened doesn't look like the fifth bowl when it's poured out, and it doesn't look like what happens when the fifth trumpet is sounded. They're all different, actually. There's no way you can make them fit. The only ones that are identical, would you believe it, are the sevens. <laughs> but actually, the seventh seal looks very much like the seventh bowl which looks very much like what happens when the seventh trumpet is blown. And in that seventh moment, there is a great earthquake that shakes the whole earth. Perhaps, we can theorize, related to Hebrews 13 and the shaking of all things so that only the kingdom of God remains. And so I'm gonna put something up that might blow your mind, might be very confusing, and it's not quite right in your handouts, unfortunately, because it didn't print right. So do correct your handouts. I think what's going on is this, that actually the seven seals are part of one cycle of judgment on the earth. And there is a holding off until the very last act of judgment on the earth. And then another cycle starts. 
and there's a holding off. And then the final cycle starts, and then finally, all three cycles are completed simultaneously with that one last judgment event. Again, feel free to disagree with me. This is just one way of seeing these things. There's loads more, loads more. But this is the one that fits best in my mind. And as part of that, there are various interludes that occur between the cycles, and they're almost like pauses in the story. And I like to think, and commentators think, that perhaps they are pauses in these cycles of judgment to give people time to repent. Each cycle has built into it a moment of prolonged pause for repentance. Now, in this, it's very important to notice the sevens and that there are three sevens. Because symbology, like I said, is really important in the book of Revelation. So seven denotes completeness, hence there are seven days of creation. And three denotes perfection, hence the living creatures cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The thrice holy, the perfectly holy God. And so a three-time, three seven-fold judgment cycle, what does that say? that it's going to be complete and perfect judgment on the earth. Complete and perfect. This is tough stuff, isn't it? Not what you'd normally get in a Bible study, but it is what God longs to do, to do things in the right way that shows his glory, his perfection, his completeness to things. Well, if this is true, if this is part of the central section of the book of Revelation, well, what are these interludes that are going on? Well, they're brief pauses to kind of show a few key nuances of the judgments that are going on. So let's have a look at a few of them. Just flick with me. Chapter 7, an interlude in the first cycle, shows God's old and new covenant people being sealed. And that's the promise that God's faithful people will be marked and protected in the midst of the events of the first cycle of judgment, that God takes special care of his people in the midst of judgment of the earth. The second interlude is a bit longer, chapters 10 through to 11, and that's in the second judgment cycle, the bulls. And what's going on there, I think, is a separate moment of judgment because John is told to eat a scroll, a smaller scroll, a smaller plan within the bigger plan. And then when he does that, he's told to prophesy again. And this time he prophesies about two witnesses who die but come back to life before the seventh trumpet. We don't know who they are, but they will witness the whole world. And like Jesus, they're going to be killed. But God will raise them from the dead in vindication. And there could be no greater witness given than Jesus, to Jesus' death and resurrection by having two people go through it right in front of the world's eyes, dying and coming back to life. They're going to be living witnesses. And we don't know who these guys are, if they are actually people at all. But somehow Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection, are going to be publicly portrayed as witness. God has given the world every single chance to repent, the people of the earth. And the third interlude, which is a long one as well, is part of the sevenfold last judgment cycle. One last chance to repent before it's too late. And in this, 
There seems to be a woman who gives birth to a child who will rule the nations with an iron rod, which we know from Psalm 2 and other places, must be Jesus. Who's the woman? Well, I think most likely Israel, but other options are the church and Mary. And I have respect if you take one of those other options as well, because you can argue along any of these lines. But I tend to think it's Israel itself, that there's a battle between what's clearly said in Daniel as Israel's archangel, Michael, and Michael's mentioned here. I think the dragon, no doubt, that tries to persecute this woman is Satan. And I think that what is being portrayed here is that in the end times, God's first covenant ethnic people are going to suffer terribly. But it says that they're going to be rescued from that suffering. And I like to think that that might be a fulfillment of Romans 11 when they come to Christ, when the nation of Israel turns and believes in their Messiah. Don't quote me on that. It could mean something completely different. But that's how I've come to understand it. And then after that, there are two beasts that emerge after that, representing powers and systems that will try to deceive the whole world and mark people for themselves, a kind of demonic counterfeit to the sealed people of God earlier. These are political systems that in this time will try to claim complete allegiance and try to take the place of God. But as we'll see in a moment, they, in the end, are judged and destroyed as well. Well, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop there and give you a minute. I've explained the threefold, seven-part vision cycle in the middle of this book. Turn to your neighbour next to you for a minute and say, what struck you most out of that? Apart from, I'm confused. (laughs) That wouldn't be good. Um, but do ask questions if you'd like to a bit later. It's part of our Q&A. Okay, well, I've got to carry on. We haven't got to the end of Revelation yet. And don't worry, there is good news coming. You know this, don't you? There is good news coming. Well, after this threefold, seven-part judgment cycle, or seven-part, threefold judgment cycle, whichever way you want to call it, there's one last vision that, Jesus, uh, that John has shown in this central drama. And it shows things from a completely different angle. The cycles that we've been looking at focused on what happens to humans during this time. For chapters 17 and through to 20, it's shown what happens to the demonic powers of the enemy during this time and their ultimate judgment. The angle shifts, like that football goal, change of angle. And this would have been of great comfort to the persecuted church of the time because they would have been well aware aware that behind the physical persecution by humans of the Roman Empire stood the work of the enemy and that ultimately his end is sealed and his powers will be defeated. This last vision, chapters 17 through to 20, predicts the rise of a great political power like Rome, but even more powerful, even more evil in persecuting the church. It has lots of similarities, you'll see, with Rome as you read through, but taken to another degree. And the city is trailered in at the end of the seventh bowl and is called Babylon the prostitute. A cipher, really, from the Old Testament of an evil power system set against God. And this adulterous, this prostitute, rides a great demonic beast 
the beast I mentioned earlier. And together they wage war against the lamb and his people. But they don't succeed. There's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of persecution, there's a lot of bloodshed, but in the end they do not succeed. And chapters 19 and 20, the great shout of joy, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. Linking through to your Old Testament Babylon's fall, but actually this is going to be an even greater fall. And then there's joy. There's joy that the defeat of this demonic power clears the way for the wedding of the Lamb, for Christ's return, for Jesus coming back for his bride, the church. And then Jesus does come, chapter 19, on a white steed. Finally, Christ has returned. He defeats the beast, the false prophet, who I haven't mentioned but made an appearance in the sixth bowl of judgment, and they're thrown into a pit of fire and sulfur for all eternity. And you'd expect that all that remains now is for Satan himself to follow suit the dragon to suffer the same fate at Jesus' hand. And that does happen in chapter 20, verse 7. But before that comes chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, and perhaps one of the most disputed parts of the book of Revelation, the millennium. <laughs> and we are going to look at this very briefly. So we've talked about the interludes, we've talked about the judgment of the demonic. We're now going to talk about the millennium. This isn't a Robbie Williams song. This is actually in the Bible. And um, uh, Theo, you got that, didn't you? You were a kid of my heart. Yes. At face value, what John sees in the beginning of chapter 20 is an angel who drags the dragon Satan into the abyss and locks him up for a thousand years and during this time, those who have been martyred for Christ come back to life, reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years. And then Satan is released from the abyss. There's one final battle between his people and God's people, resulting in his defeat, being thrown into the pit of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And the whole unholy counterfeit trinity are finally defeated, judged and condemned. Then comes the general resurrection of all dead and the coming of heaven and earth. But there's a thousand year pause what is going on? Well, it's hard to understand. And over church history, over the 2,000 years of church history, there have been many ways of trying to grapple with this. And over the last century, especially, four key views have emerged as to what this millennium is talking about. And you've got them in your handout, I think. They are premillennialism, postmillennialism, dispensationalism, and amillennialism. Now, you don't need to remember those words. You don't perhaps even need to remember anything about what I say. But hopefully, this will begin to make sense of things. Premillennialism is the view that it's a literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth after he returns, after which evil is finally defeated. And the pre here, in the word, refers to the fact that Christ comes before the thousand-year reign. It's the literal reading, one would say, of chapter 19 and 20's flow. This, as well as the next two views I'm going to talk about, have both pre-tribulation and post-tribulation variants, depending on when you think God's people are raptured out of all the mess. Post-millennialism. It's still a thousand years, but it's the reign of the church rather than Christ specifically. And Christ will come after 
the thousand-year reign of the church on earth, hence post-millennialism. And again, there's pre- and post-tribulation variants of that. Dispensationalism. This is part of a wider understanding that the church experiences seven different ages over its history, related to the seven letters at the beginning of the book. And the last of those ages is the millennium. Where, and I'm not kidding. It, people believe that God will reign for a thousand years with his people in the heavenly Jerusalem that will hover above the earthly one, waiting to descend. They'll literally be on top of each other. Okay, and then amillennialism. And this says that the thousand years is understood symbolically as the history of the church. And that this is a separate zoom-out vision of what's been going on over the history of the church. And that the binding of Satan was at the cross and his release is associated with increased activity of his in the end times. And the A in amillennialism refers to no millennium in one sense, like atheist originally meant not a theist. Well, each one of these has pros and cons, and I don't think anyone should die in a ditch over this particular issue. They're respectable Bible teachers and scholars who take different um, positions here. I am going to share what I think is true, very gently, but I'm convinced by my own reasoning here. And I want you to convince by your reasoning as to what position, if any, you want to take on this. You don't have to. It's very much a secondary issue. I tend to go down the amillennial route here for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was the position that was held by the early church fathers, the majority of them, and they were closest to the symbology of the book of Revelation. They understood it best. I think we'd, we'd be wise to listen to their wisdom. And I think it also fits in best with the words outside of the book of Revelation, the words of Jesus, of Daniel, and other Old Testament prophets who all speak about this end time. And none of them mention a thousand-year pause in things. In fact, all of them say these things happen in quick succession. Daniel, interestingly, describing almost the exact same events leading up to the general resurrection from the dead, doesn't mention it at all. Daniel's vision in Daniel 12 overlaps with the vision given in Revelations 19 and 20, and there's no pause in events. I think that this is describing the history of the church, and that actually the binding of Satan happened at the cross, and the release of Satan is to come as he's allowed extra activity at the end time before his judgment is met out. It does involve switching to a historicist view of interpreting Revelation. I think we're given license to do this, though, by the Apostle Peter. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, for those waiting for the Lord's return, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Is it coincidence that he uses the same amount of time? I don't know, but he seems to liken our current waiting for the Lord's return as like a thousand years, which can be as short or as long as you want. And it's been 2,000 for us. 
and that the figure of 1,000 is to be interpreted flexibly and perhaps symbolically. Again, this is another place where I'm very happy to be wrong and to be shown to be wrong in the end. And I think it's a bit like um, before Jesus' first coming, the prophecies of his first coming didn't quite make sense. And various rabbis at the time had different theories, actually, as to what this Messiah would look like. There are various schools. But then after he came, it was blindingly obvious what it all meant and how they all fitted together. And I think the same will be true for us, actually, that when Jesus returns and we see these things starting to happen, it will become blindingly obvious which of these interpretations is the right one. Perhaps the best position to hold in the end is what's been called pan-millennialism. They will all pan out in the end. I like that. I like that. Okay, so that's the middle section of the book of Revelation. I've got not many minutes left. Okay. Finally, finally we're there. Because with every demonic power judged and taken out of action, condemned forever, with all the enemies of God put under his feet when Jesus returns, finally, Christ has been enthroned on the earth and now the new creation come and Christ can be ruler over all. And whatever your take on preceding events, by the end of chapter 20, Jesus has returned to rule over the earth and there has been a general resurrection of all people from the dead to join those alive when Christ returns. And this is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, when he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All means all. All people in history will appear before that throne, before that judgment seat. Jesus talks about this very clearly in parables at the end of Matthew and other Gospels as well. And in chapter 20, verse 12 onwards, those whose names are not found in the book of life are thrown into the same lake of fire as Satan and his minions are in. This is the real existence of hell for anyone who isn't in God's book of life. And this is what Jesus saves you from if you choose him to be Lord and Savior. This is ultimately what he saves you from. Revelation doesn't actually spend much time digging into the nature of hell because it's a book written for the persecuted early church, for God's people, whose names very much are in the book of life. And they've got a radically different destiny that brings great joy and comfort. Chapters 21 and 22, which describes the coming of the new creation with the old order of things passing away and God making everything new, reversing the curse of the fall and doing even more, arguably, creating a place of greater blessing than Eden. A new creation marked by a city coming down from heaven, a city where God will live with his people and his people with him, the new Jerusalem, it's called, in direct contrast to the evil and destroyed Babylon. In verses 2 and 9 of chapter 21, the city is called the bride of the Lamb, i.e. God's people that somehow simultaneously the themes of God's people, God's place, and God's blessing. Remember, we've been seeing these three throughout the Bible storyline. Find convergence and fulfillment in one place. That it's the bride, the people that married to the Lamb, that it's the place, the new Jerusalem, 
and it's the place, of course, of God's blessing, his rule and his reign. They all find fulfillment here in chapter 21. The descriptions of the city, its dimensions, verse 15, over a perfect cube, brilliant and jewel-laden, representing the glorious and perfect nature of what's to come. And as we often quote at funerals, for the persecuted church as well, this would have been especially poignant. It's the place where God will wipe away every tear, where there's no more death, mourning, crying or pain, as in verse 4. And then the next chapter, chapter 22, zooms in on the city and reveals what we've been missing for so long, the tree of life that we were banished from right at the beginning of the story. It's there, firmly at the centre, along the banks of the river that flows through this city. And the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. And just there, at the centre as well, is the throne and the Lamb of God at the centre of the new creation. This is Jesus' enthronement here in the new place, the new creation, ruler over all. And verse 6, it's the place where we'll get to reign with him as well. He's now firmly established as king over all. And taking a step back, this is glorious. This is wonderful. This is beyond words. He will be all in all king overall, and we get to share in that everything. In terms of timelines here, I believe, and again, I'm happy to be wrong here, that this is what every one of us will experience moments after we die, actually. When Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, I think that this is what he's referencing. That for all who die in Christ, they will sleep, as Paul talks about it, as if they're sleeping. And then they will awake to the general resurrection if Christ hasn't come in their lifetime already. They'll meet him in the air, they'll come before the throne room of God, and they'll be acquitted and set free from judgment because they're covered by the blood of Christ. And they get to take up residence and be this new city, the Bride of Christ. And I think it happens, from our perspective, almost instantly. It might be thousands of years in the, in the future in terms of the timeline here on Earth. And all these events, I don't think, have happened, though they might be starting to. But for us, when we die, the next thing I think we're going to see is this. The judgment seat and then this new Jerusalem and paradise and eternal life forever. Again, I'm happy to be wrong about that. There's various theories about that. We'll be given the new resurrection body to live out this new life. And we're not told much about this new life apart from it centers on Christ. It's all about him. He's the reward. Learn to love him more in this life and it'll be an even greater reward in the life to come. C.H. Spurgeon says here, to come to thee is to come home from exile to come to land after the great raging storm, to come to rest after long labour, to come to the goal of my desires and to the summit of my wishes. With Revelation 22, we've come to the end of the storyline of the Bible, but it's not the end of the story. It's actually only the beginning. Our destiny is to live in Revelation chapter 23, 24, 25, 26, and onwards. 
It's that place that Lewis described as the place where every chapter is better than the one before. That's our destiny. <laughs> no wonder the rest of chapter 22 is an assurance by Jesus, this is definitely going to happen. I'm coming again. It's coming soon. And then an invitation to all saying, come. <laughs> this is for you. This is for you. Come. This is certain. Come. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Verse 20. He who testifies to these say, things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all God's people. Amen.